The White House says leading technology companies will agree to regulations on how they test and deploy new artificial intelligence capabilities. It's Friday, July 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up with former President Donald Trump saying he expects to be indicted for his role in the Capitol insurrection. A look at how that's affecting the Republican race for president. Also, we hear from the director of the CIA on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what it means for U.S. intelligence and this hour. I think this provides a new way of looking at Edward Hopper, an artist that we all think we know. A new exhibit shows how a summer on Cape Ann a hundred years ago transformed the career and life of artist Edward Hopper. The U.S. women's soccer team plays its first World Cup game tonight. Increasing clouds today with showers this afternoon near 80. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The National Weather Service says a dangerous, long-lived and record-breaking heat wave will continue over the southwest today and into early next week. Similar heat indexes will persist in southern states. The conditions are potentially life-threatening. Authorities in Southern California are looking for a hiker missing since last Saturday. South Pasadena Police Chief Brian Selinski says he vanished in the mountains northwest of Los Angeles. The steep terrain, the vegetation, and the heat are making progress challenging. However, the search teams are determined to continue all efforts. Temperatures in the greater Los Angeles region will soar as high as 112 degrees today. Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear will tour flood-damaged areas of his state today. Parts of western Kentucky were hit this week with some of the heaviest rainfall the state has ever seen. The drug maker Pfizer says it is working to recover from tornado damage to one of its North Carolina plants this week. No one was hurt, but the tornado caused substantial damage. The Pfizer plant supplies a large amount of critical medicines to hospitals. There are now concerns about how the damage could affect the supply chain for that medicine. The Senate Judiciary Committee has voted along party lines to send a Supreme Court ethics bill to the Senate floor. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports. The bill would require the court to write an ethics code for itself based in part on the existing code for lower court judges. It would require the creation of a mechanism to investigate alleged violations of the code. It would require greater disclosure when a justice has a connection to a person or group that provides funding for friend-of-the-court briefs. And it would require the justices to explain their recusal decisions to the public. Though the bill was approved by the committee, it has little chance of passing, given that Republicans, who are strongly opposed, can easily filibuster it to death. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. The CEO of American Airlines says the Texas-based carrier will match the wages United Airlines is offering its pilots. For member station KERA, Becca Moore reports, Americans' pilots are poised to vote on a new contract. Robert Issa made the promise during Thursday's second quarter earnings call, just four days before American pilots are set to begin voting on a new four-year deal that includes a 42 percent pay increase. The Allied Pilots Association is the union representing more than 13,000 American pilots. They say the United Airlines contract would lead to at least a 2% pay gap between American and United pilots. But ISM says he's willing to close that gap. We're working with uh, the APA and and our pilots. Uh, Our intent is to uh, match uh, the wages that we're aware of in the the tentative agreement that United uh, has signed. American pilots are set to begin voting on the new four-year contract Monday. For NPR News, I'm Becca Moore in Dallas. You're listening to NPR News. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The state is teaming up with the United Way of Central Massachusetts to help farmers devastated by recent flooding. Farmers say the floods earlier this month destroyed not just this year's crop, but may also have hurt next year's growing season as well. Yesterday, the governor's office announced the formation of the Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll says farmers are public servants and they need our help. What they do, growing food, not just for their families, but for all of us, is the sustenance that provides for strong communities. And when they are doing well, we are doing well. And when our farmers are hurting and challenged, we are hurting and challenged. State agriculture officials say more than 75 farms lost at least $15 million worth of crops in last week's flooding. The state's Office for Refugees and Immigrants is now offering free legal services to migrant families. Officials tell the Boston Globe the program will be available at more than 30 emergency shelters around the state. The goal is to help the new arrivals integrate into life in Massachusetts. That includes processing paperwork like asylum applications and work permits. The head of a Massachusetts food assistance program says a growing number of families are experiencing food insecurity. The head of Project Bread says that's where her group's Summer Eats program comes in. CEO Erin McAleer says the program provides free meals to students while school is out of session. 21% of families with children are food insecure in Massachusetts. And we also know that a lot of the supports that families were relying on during COVID have gone away. And so it makes this program even more important. About 1,300 Summer Eats sites are giving away meals this year. The program provided more than 2 million meals last July alone. Maculeer says her group is pushing to make universal free school meals programs permanent in Massachusetts. A 16th-century manuscript that had been up for sale at a Massachusetts auction house is now back in Mexico. The FBI repatriated the stolen document this week. The manuscript was signed by conquistador Hernán Cortés in 1527 and is called a part of Mexico's cultural heritage. The FBI says it was stolen in the 1990s and identified by Mexican officials before it went up for auction. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. The Red Sox are back at Fenway tonight to host the New York Mets. Increasing clouds throughout the day today. There's a chance for showers in the afternoon. It'll be near 80. Cloudy with showers and storms likely overnight. Temperatures in the 60s. Tomorrow morning showers, then cloudy in the 80s. Sunny and in the 80s on Sunday. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at wbur.org slash rentals.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Layla Falden. It's never too late for true love. And we've got a story coming up that demonstrates that. But first, let's turn to the 2024 presidential campaign. Former President Donald Trump's popularity with Republican voters is putting his GOP rivals in an interesting position. He's been indicted twice, but his popularity remains strong. So some Republican candidates, namely Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, have tried to balance supporting the former president while softly criticizing him. But as a third possible indictment looms, this time over his actions during the January 6th attack, DeSantis is being a bit more forceful about Trump's behavior on the day a violent mob stormed the U.S. Capitol. It was shown how he was in the White House and didn't do anything while, while things were going on. So are Trump's rivals now focusing on his legal woes? Here to talk about this is NPR's White House correspondent, Franco Ordonez. Hi, good morning. Hey, Layla. So with the past two indictments, not only has Trump stayed popular, he's gotten more popular. So what's different this time with this possible indictment? Right. I mean, DeSantis so far has largely ducked opportunities to criticize Trump. So this time, this caught the attention of a lot of people, including the Trump campaign. DeSantis is actually not the only one. Nikki Haley said on Fox News that Trump's legal troubles were a distraction. Mm -hmm. And she warned that if something didn't change, the entire primary was going to be about Trump and his legal problems. And that's kind of been the case so far, right? Right. But DeSantis also said he didn't think Trump's actions amounted to criminal behavior. Is he trying to have it both ways here? It seems that way. I'd say they're, you know, kind of inching toward criticizing Trump. Mm. I mean, in almost any different type of political environment, indictment would probably be a big opportunity for opponents to gain ground. Yeah. But many Republican-based voters now pretty much dismiss any allegation against Trump. So rivals are being careful. They do not want to alienate those people. And that's not really a way to win elections, though, at least according to Republican strategists I speak with, like Doug High. He says eventually they're going to need to take on Trump. And ultimately, as we learned in Star Wars, Luke Skywalker had to confront Darth Vader. He couldn't depend on the force to take care of it for him. The Republicans are making a mistake in, in acting like that right now. And he notes that Trump probably would not take such a large view if the tables were turned and say DeSantis was indicted. Trump would attack. I like that Star Wars reference there to describe the political landscape. Does the fact that this involves what was an unimaginable thing until it happened, an attack on the Capitol, make any difference? I mean, we're talking about a historic event, a deadly day that millions of Americans either watch live on television or on replay multiple times. At the time, most Republican leaders fled from Trump. There was a lot of talk that it was the end of his political career. Mm. But clearly, perspectives have changed. Right. And now he's the undisputed frontrunner of the Republican nomination. I spoke with Brian Lanza. He's a former aide who is still close to the campaign. He says another indictment is not going to change that trajectory. The president has learned how to weaponize government's actions into a high revenue venture for his campaign. I, I think anything that comes forward, we know what the game plan is going to be. And that game plan is to raise money. They're going to continue to use the likelihood of an indictment as another example of how Trump's being unfairly targeted. Trump is already doing that on repeat. And the reality is, like it or not, much of the Republican base agrees with him because they, too, feel that Trump has been targeted. So he's weaponizing those indictments. That's NPR's White House correspondent, Franco Ordonez. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Layla. 
Pollsters at Quinnipiac University say Americans have given the Supreme Court its lowest marks since they started asking the question nearly 20 years ago. Yesterday, the Senate Judiciary Committee advanced a bill that would require the high court to adopt the same ethical code of conduct that applies to lower courts. Before the vote along party lines, the Democratic Committee Chair Dick Durbin laid out the recent report of ethical lapses by both conservative and liberal justices. They are the most powerful judges in America, and yet they are not required to follow even the most basic ethical standards. The committee's top Republican, Lindsey Graham, dismissed it all as an effort to, quote-unquote, destroy a conservative court. This bill is going nowhere. All of us are going to vote no. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is a Democrat from Rhode Island, and he introduced the ethics bill, so we called him to ask what happens now. Good morning, Senator. Good morning. Let me just start with what we just heard from one of your Republican colleagues. And this has been a constant theme among Republicans and the conservative media. And the argument is that this is about politics, not ethics. This is a way to undermine or attack people whose decisions you don't like. How do you respond to that? Well, that's the um, performative argument that they make. What was interesting in the markup yesterday was that there was no defense Uh, offered by any Republican of any of the conduct of the Supreme Court justices that has recently come to light. The billionaire-funded undisclosed jet travel, the payments for family members' tuition, the uh, gifts to spouses, all of it is just um, not part of the commentary as far as the Republicans are concerned. So I think, you know, they're very concerned about defending a court that is delivering for them and for their donors in a very big way. And they simply don't want to engage on the question of the actual ethics violations that uh, we've been presented with. But, you know, interestingly, all nine justices say that they don't need a mandatory code of ethics or independent oversight. What do you make of that? Well, it's a little bit, uh, I think, uh, not so clear as that. They have been debating internally Um, what to do, and they simply have not reached a resolution. There's separately a judicial conference of lower court judges that has already started correcting uh, Supreme Court uh, behavior. And um, I think that the dam is beginning to break. Um, And I think we'll see a little bit more uh, receptivity. Even the chief justice recently said he acknowledged that there is more to do on ethics and we await him to do more. Hmm, Interesting, because, you know, more than a decade ago, the chief justice, John Roberts, rejected a similar effort to legislate ethics rules. Do you think this moment is any different? Well, you know, it's an interesting argument for the chief justice to make because this is focused really on financial disclosure and code of conduct. And both the financial disclosure uh, rules of the of the uh, courts and the code of conduct rules are um, passed by Congress. Recusal, for instance, is a, a congressional statute, and the body that oversees code of conduct issues and financial disclosure issues for the judiciary is a body created by Congress. This judicial conference. So the notion that Congress doesn't have a proper role here is belied by decades of an actual congressional role here. So how do how would you give it, you, you know, you call the opposition, you know, performative and, um, you know, we're not in those meetings privately. Uh, so, you know, perhaps there are conversations that are different sort of behind closed doors. But do you see any sign that, that Republicans could be persuaded on this point? Yes. Uh, first of all, until this became hotter and more acrid, 
there were private conversations going on with Republicans on the committee, um, and they had a very different uh, tone and point of view. And second, the revelations about the Supreme Court are not going to get any better. They're going to get worse. Uh, as our investigations go forward and as more information becomes public, the court is just going to look worse and worse. And there will uh, come a time when Republicans are simply going to have no choice but to agree to this because the public outrage will be – it's already bad and it will be really deafening. We only have 30 seconds left, but why do you say that? Because people are already angry about what's going on at the court, and one of the best bellwethers of that is how angry some of the other federal judges are who have to live under a proper ethics code and are perfect witnesses as to how the court okay. has traveled out of bounds. That is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. He's a Democrat from Rhode Island. Senator, thank you. Thank you. Now, some proof that true love is timeless. From Colorado Public Radio, here's Ryan Warner. In the depths of the pandemic, Ken Feltz came out of the closet at age 90 on Facebook. There comes a time when you grow old that you have to face up to how you have lived your life, to face up to your inner self. I have always had two personas, the one out in public... The Navy veteran had been journaling when memories surfaced of a man he dated in the 1950s. Philip had blue eyes and a killer smile. They were happy together. The fellowship, the holding hands, uh, the closeness. Even now... <sighs> it's still okay. really visceral, huh? Very much so, yes. Do you think that that's proof it's true love? It must be because it's hung on for, <clears throat> for 60 years now. Feltz, though, was determined to be straight. He left Philip and married a woman. They had a child, then divorced. In 2020, his daughter was the first person he told he was gay. They were even on StoryCorps together. I asked Feltz if he wanted to get married again. No. <laughs> You've been there, done that. That's correct. That's correct. Now, of course, if it was Philip, I'd marry Philip. <laughs> hmm. Philip, however, had died by then. Felt's story went viral, and nearby Johnny Howe read one of the articles about him. Watching his story of, you know, never too late to come out, that inspired me to write to him, um, letting him know that I really found encouragement from his story. Howe didn't expect a response, but got one, and the two went on a date. It was a love connection, inspiring Howe to come out of the closet, and Feltz, now 93, to change his mind about marriage. Ken, you have chosen Johnny to be your husband. Will you stand by him through whatever may come? I will. On July 8th, they exchanged rings in their backyard in Arvada, Colorado, and Feltz was once again inspired to write a poem for Johnny. Near the end of my days and in the heat of my night, I found a great love whom I shall ever hold tight. We explore our new world with breathless delight. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Warner in Denver.
This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, CIA Director William Burns on the state of Russia's offensive in Ukraine and President Biden's decision to supply Ukrainians with cluster bombs. It's 719. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step, plymouthrock.com slash WBUR. What happens in the brain when you pray? When they have that sense of oneness, that sense of connectedness, we see decreases of activity in the parietal lobe, which is helping us to create our spatial representation of ourselves. Spiritual experiences vary by faith, culture, and the individual. But is neuroscience showing us that they're more similar than we think? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It'll grow increasingly overcast today and we'll have a high near 80. There's a chance of showers beginning in the late afternoon and we may see thunderstorms overnight. It'll fall to around 68. Tomorrow, partly sunny and a high near 82. Sunday, sunny with a high near 85. Right now it's 73 degrees in Boston. Heavy words. Heavy lips. You didn't have to be shot to me, but I didn't mean to be mean about it. That's the sound of Boston-based musician Allie McGurk. Her style is described as a mashup of jazz, blues, and classic rock. She'll be featured next Thursday in the latest installment of our Sound On Music Festival. Get details and tickets at wbur.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness. Amelia Fox returns to solve murders in this forensic crime drama where every dead body tells a story. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at MelvilleTrust.org. From EBSCO with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fulton. And I'm Michelle Martin. Barbie is here. As if you somehow missed this news, we're talking about the film starring Margot Robbie as one of many Barbies and Ryan Gosling as one of many Kens living among a lot of pink in Barbie land. But trouble arises when Barbie, the one played by Robbie, has an existential crisis. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday and so is tomorrow and every day from now until forever. <laughs> Do you guys ever think about dying? 
So she sets out on a journey from Barbie land to the real world in a quest for, well, meaning. The movie comes out today, but our friends at NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour got a peek, and we're asking them if the movie truly lives up to the hype. Stephen Thompson, Linda Holmes, Aisha Harris talked about it with film critic and journalist Bedatri Dichaudry. There are loads of jokes, loads of pink sets, loads of needle drops and original songs, and loads of whatever is going on with Ryan Gosling's hair. Barbie was directed by Greta Gerwig, who also directed Lady Bird and Little Women, and it was written by Gerwig and her partner, Noah Baumbach. Barbie is in theaters now. Badatri D. Chaudhry, I'm going to start with you. What did you think of Barbie? Oof, I think it's a lot. <laughs> did I have a lot of fun? Yes, I did. But it's still like, it doesn't sit very well, but in a very fun way. How do you mean doesn't sit very well? I don't know. And like, I'd love to talk uh, more about this with you guys. Like the first thing I thought when I came out of the theater was, is it camp? And that for me (laughs) as a cultural journalist and film critic is the most horrific question. Because if it's camp and you don't get it, that's like the worst thing. You might as well stop writing about films. That's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> Having said that, I had so much fun. Like I grew up in the 90s. I had these dolls. So they do manage to make the ride a lot of fun. Okay. How about you, Homsey? I had so much fun at this movie. I think they executed it with enormous panache in terms of the production design. I really love the performances. I think Margot Robbie is surprisingly poignant in this movie, Mm -hmm. which you kind of will understand better, I think, once you've seen it. But, you know, like Badatri, I feel conflicted about everything it's trying to say. There is a lot of textual critique of patriarchy and critique of capitalism and critique of Mattel. LOL. (laughs) And it's like, what does it mean to have these textual critiques when all the extra textual stuff, including how the movie was made, how the movie is being marketed, who the movie is going to benefit, all of that stuff is all taking place firmly within all of these systems. Because, for example, when you're doing critique of Mattel and its very male leadership, that very male leadership wouldn't have signed off on this movie if they thought it was going to hurt them. But at the same time, I loved looking at this movie. I think the performances, like I said, are great. I had a wonderful time, and I think it's super funny. Aisha Harris, uh, what did you think of Barbie? I mean, there is, of course, that tension between art and commerce that is always going to exist. And there are ways and examples of this where it can really, really, really work. See the Lego movie. The difference between this and the Lego movie is that As far as I can remember, Lego did not have as nearly as much baggage (laughs) as Barbie does and Barbie comes with. And so under that tension between art and commerce, you also have this sort of added layer tension between the sharp political critique of a system while functioning explicitly as a product of that system. You know, I really had a lot of fun with this. What I think puts it over the top for me or makes it work even when it doesn't always work for me or work overall Mm. are the performances is the fact that Greta Gerwig for me has been able to take all of these sort of familiar stories in her previous directorial movies and bring something new and interesting to them. And I do think it's good, actually, with a lot of buts and a lot of caveats. Yeah. And I guess one of my reactions to that is like, what is the alternative? How would you get around the critiques that we've kind of leveled in this conversation so far. Like, you're not going to make a Barbie movie without Mattel's sign-off. 
capitalism has its tendrils in every facet of major movie making. I mean, the alternative is other movies. Yes. You know? Yes. (laughs) I also think alternative is that you don't put in so much money into one film. It's just mind-boggling for me. (laughs) I guess it's just interesting. There's a scene in this movie that really stands out. There's a monologue in this film (sighs) in which a character kind of lays out the really complex web of pressures on women in society and and you're expected to do this but not this and this but not this and you have to push for things but not push too hard and it's it's kind of a little bit of a being a woman 101 yes it's pretty blunt many would argue it's 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 pretty necessary to put it in this film it's also kind of a meta commentary on what this movie's trying to do right this movie is trying to do so so much and balance these very 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 contradictory impulses. They want to comment on the patriarchy and society and feminism while still being a big mainstream movie. It's interesting to me that this film at one point kind of stops and almost lays out the enormous task that it has given itself. Yeah, but I think if you are a woman, you are a woman and you don't have the option of deciding, like, I'm just not going to be a woman because the kind of idea of that is too complicated. Whereas you can decide I'm not going to make a Barbie movie. Mm. And so I think the stakes are a little bit different. But I do think the film is setting up a parallel between what it's like to try to be a woman and what it's like to try to be a Barbie movie. I'm not sure I (laughs) see that parallel. One of the things I think is interesting is that this film to me is a really good example of how many different crafts are involved in making a film really vital and wonderful because the production design of this is tremendous. The supporting performances and thus the casting are Mm -hmm. tremendous. You know, music supervision. Oh, boy, get me started. I think it's lovely to have a film come out that really puts the spotlight on not just the writing and not just the acting, although I think both are really strong, But every kind of element of this film, you can see so many crafts really popping in this movie. And that was something I appreciated a lot. That was Pop Culture Happy Hour hosts Linda Holmes, Ayesha Harris, and Stephen Thompson, along with film critic and culture journalist Bedatri Dichaudry. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.50 on WB Moore's Morning Edition. A new exhibit explores how a chance encounter on Cape Ann a hundred years ago transformed artist Edward Hopper's life and career. It's 7.29. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Noor Rahm. The criminal indictments of former President Donald Trump in New York and Florida and a possible third indictment in Washington do not appear to be threatening his status as the frontrunner for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports his rivals are not inclined to mention the cases. In almost any different type of political environment, indictment would probably be a big opportunity for opponents to gain ground. But many Republican-based voters now pretty much dismiss any allegation against Trump. So rivals are being careful. They do not want to alienate those people. 
The House has voted to reauthorize the Federal Aviation Administration for the next five years. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. The House bill includes numerous provisions, including refunds and reimbursements for passengers, hiring more air traffic controllers, and additional funding to improve airport infrastructure. In the meantime, the Senate is considering its own version of the legislation. The two sides will have to merge their bills into a final measure by the end of September. That's when the current authorization is set to expire. The Senate Judiciary Committee has passed a bill to require the Supreme Court to devise and abide by an ethics code. This follows revelations some justices have accepted expensive gifts. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. UMass Lowell is beginning the process of cutting staff. The university has already placed a hold on what it calls new non-strategic hires. Chancellor Julie Chen says financial and demographic changes are forcing UMass Lowell to change its strategic plan moving forward. We will redirect resources to key priorities, such as enrollment marketing, and revenue-generating ideas, and identify ways to eliminate repetitive and duplicative work to reduce costs. Chen says the school will be offering a voluntary buyout program. She says the number of employees that accept the buyout will determine the need for layoffs. For the first time in a decade, fewer people aged 30 and older in Massachusetts are giving birth. That's according to the State Department of Public Health. Data show in 2020 the birth rate for that age group dropped nearly 2 percent. Births among people under 30 also declined by more than 7.5 percent. DPH says high child care costs and overall cost of living in the state are likely reasons for the drop. The mayor of New Bedford is running for a sixth term in office. John Mitchell has been in office for more than a decade. In his announcement, Mitchell touted drops in crime and the city's unemployment rate. It's 732. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books. Author Emily Habeck launches her debut novel, Shark Heart, in conversation with Grace Toulousen, August 8th. More at portersquarebooks.com. Tonight, the Red Sox host the New York Mets, and the U.S. women's soccer team will play its first 2023 World Cup match tonight in Auckland, and some Boston fans will be hosting a watch party as the U.S. plays Vietnam. Laura Everett is with the group Boston Women's Sports. She says they're hosting a watch party at the Saigon Seafood Restaurant in Fields Corner. Really thrilled to be partnering with a Vietnamese-American restaurant, um, this is a huge deal that Vietnam is playing in their first World Cup only 26 years after the team played their first international match. Boston Women's Sports is asking anyone interested in attending to RSVP through its website. The match begins tonight at 9. Clouds move in throughout the day today and we'll have highs near 80. There's a chance of afternoon showers and tonight we may see thunderstorms. Overnight it dips into the 60s. Tomorrow partly sunny and highs in the low 80s. Then sunny on Sunday with temperatures rising to the mid 80s. It's 72 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. 
And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. The conflict between Russia and Ukraine intensified this week, with Russia attacking Ukrainian port cities that ship grain around the world, and Ukraine starting to use U.S.-supplied cluster bombs. That's something our colleague and All Things Considered co-host Mary Louise Kelly asked CIA Director William Burns about last night at the Aspen Security Forum. You were just in Ukraine. How is the big counteroffensive going? What's your assessment? I'm a pretty regular travel to Ukraine, you know, over the course of the last 18 months. And and that's a reflection of the significance that the president, everyone in the U.S. government attaches uh, to our support for what has been an incredibly courageous and tenacious Ukrainian effort to fight back against uh, Putin and against Russia. I don't think it should come as a surprise to anyone that the counteroffensive is a hard slog. The Russians have had months to prepare not only fixed defenses in Zaporizhia, in southern Ukraine, but also quite thick and extensive minefields as well. I am, however, an optimist. And I think the thing sometimes that it's easy to forget is that behind those considerable fixed defenses that the Russians have built, you know, there still lies some pretty significant structural weaknesses, poor morale, uneven generalship, to put it mildly, on the Russian side. Um, I think it is going to be a tough slog, but we're going to do everything we can as an intelligence agency to provide the kind of intelligence support and sharing that's going to help the Ukrainians to make progress. One thing that feels important to ask about, because we seem to be talking about it less, it's less in the news is the possibility of a nuclear weapon being introduced in the war zone. Um, I know that late last year you met with your Russian counterpart, Sergei Naryshkin, and you have described that your orders were from President Biden to make very clear what the consequences would be if Russia were to go down that path. Are you more or less worried about that now than a year ago? Well, I mean, I'd say several things. First, um, you know, the nuclear saber rattling that Putin and some of those around him have engaged in is reckless and deeply irresponsible. It, it is, however, not something we can take lightly. Um, we do not see today any concrete preparations for the potential use of nuclear weapons. We have made absolutely clear in that conversation with Sergei Naryshkin, one of my Russian counterparts, and through other channels, the depth of our concern. So it's something that we obviously monitor very, very carefully. But as I said, we don't see any immediate signs of preparations for nuclear use. How much more instability has it just introduced to have Russia pull out of the Green Deal and increasingly expanding its attacks on the Black Sea? Well, it's deeply troubling. I mean, first for Ukrainians, where, you know, what Putin is trying to do is wreck the Ukrainian economy. Uh, it obviously also uh, does deep damage to some of the most, most vulnerable societies on Earth in Africa and the Middle East that depend on those grain shipments. And, you know, we see some very concerning signs of the Russians considering the kind of false flag operations yeah. that, you know, we highlighted in the run-up to the war as well. In other words, looking at ways in which you know, they might uh, make attacks against shipping in the Black Sea and then blaming it or trying to blame it on the Ukrainians. 
All Things Considered co-host Mary Louise Kelly speaking with CIA Director William Burns. You can hear more of that interview this afternoon on All Things Considered. Okay, I have an important heads up right now. Please know that this next story, which runs about four minutes, contains very disturbing details about sexual violence. A video of a sexual assault has gone viral, and it has sparked outrage in India. It shows two women being paraded naked while being groped by a mob of men in India's northeastern state of Manipur. The assault took place amid fighting between two ethnic groups there that has been going on since May. Nidhi Razdun has been following the story. She's a columnist for Gulf News and joins us from New Delhi, and she's here with us now to tell us more. Good morning. Good morning. Do we know anything more about what happened to the women in that video? Well, what we know is that the incident happened on the 4th of May, which was when the violence between these two ethnic groups had started to spiral. And there was a police report, a police complaint that was filed on the 18th of May by a husband of one of the women uh, in that video. Uh, the, the video actually shows two women being assaulted, but uh, the police report says that there were five women in all who were uh, assaulted and sexually um, uh, groped and um, uh, you know assaulted by this mob. Uh, it was a mob, they say, of 1,000 men. So it wasn't just a group of 20 or 30 people. It was quite a significant number. Uh, but what has caused outrage in India is the fact that this video of their assault surfaced 48 hours ago and the police and the state government of Manipur have only stepped in to make arrests after outrage on social media hmm. and after India's Supreme Court stepped in and said that it would act if the government did not. Hmm. And forgive me for being very specific about this. I understand that at least one of the women was in fact gang raped. And uh, as you mentioned, there were other women who were abused, but others were, were not. Is that, is that accurate? That is what the police report says, and 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 they're really very horrifying details. Uh, mm. The the report says that the youngest woman in the group, who is in her twenties, uh, that she was uh, gang raped, and uh, the report goes on to say that her father and her brother were there. They were they were trying to save her from this mob of men, mm -hmm. but they were beaten up by the mob and and murdered right in front of her, oh, and their bodies were thrown away. Oh goodness! Uh, so the so the so the story is like I said, uh, extremely horrifying. And, uh, and, and, and these details have been with the Manipur police for more than two months now. It is still a big question mark as to why they did not uh, move in to arrest anybody in these two months, why they waited for the mm -hmm. outrage, why they waited for India's Supreme Court to step in and for this video to, to come out. We have uh, there has been, by the way, an internet ban in Manipur for mm -hmm. the last two months since this violence started, which is why we're not really getting a lot of information from I there. I understand. We only have about a minute left, and I apologize because it's such an important story. But, but as we mentioned, that there's been ethnic violence between these groups going on for months. Why were the women singled out and attacked in this way? Well, actually, it's not the first time that we're seeing uh, women being used uh, as instruments of violence in conflict. We've seen this happen in Manipur and in other parts of the world in war zones before. You see rape and sexual assault being used as instruments of conflict. And I think that, um, you know, you see that here uh, happening uh, again. And, it, and by the way, I just want to mention in this particular case, it started after fake news reports uh, that a woman from one of the communities had been raped by men of the other community and that's when this was 
apparently done as a revenge attack. So I think the dangers of misinformation, disinformation, fake news, that's another lesson we have to draw from all of this. That's Nidhi Rastin. She's a columnist with Gulf News talking to us from New Delhi. Thank you so much for sharing this reporting with us. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR's Morning Edition, leaders of Google, Microsoft, Meta, and Amazon will be at the White House today to announce new commitments to address concerns about artificial intelligence. Increasingly cloudy today with temperatures near 80. There's a chance of afternoon showers, upper 60s tonight, and we may see thunderstorms. Saturday, partly sunny and low 80s, clear skies on Sunday and in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 73 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by schooner Grace Bailey. You can sail the coast of Maine with Brooklyn Nine-Nine and the good place actor Mark Evan Jackson. Learn more at sailgracebailey.com. And Gentle Giant Moving and Storage, employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com slash careers. Stock in Boston-based Toast is down nearly 19 percent this week. The drop follows an announcement from the restaurant tech company that it would repeal a 99-cent fee it planned to impose on orders over $10. The company claimed that charge was needed to help its bottom line, but it reversed course after getting pushback from restaurants and customers. The partnership between JetBlue and American Airlines ends today. The carriers allowed customers to book flights with each other and earn frequent flyer miles. But a judge ruled the partnership violates antitrust laws. JetBlue decided not to appeal so it could pursue a merger with Spirit Airlines. JetBlue is the largest carrier at Logan Airport. Today is the last day to use gift cards at the Christmas tree shops. The discount retailer filed for bankruptcy in May. Then, several weeks ago, it announced it would shut down all 82 of its locations. It has not yet said when those stores will close for good. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at UMA.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. Today, you can agree to a legally binding document online by just downloading and opening an app. But it wasn't always this way. Emma Peasley from NPR's Planet Money explains how we got here. It all changed in the 90s when one court case kind of broke contract law. It started with a grad student and his get-rich-quick scheme. Scheme, you make it sound so nefarious. <laughs> that is Matt Zeidenberg. He's now a professor at NYU, but about 25 years ago, he got tangled up in one of the most controversial cases in the history of contracts. I just wanted to make a buck. I wasn't trying to create some sort of huge uh, legal precedent. So 
This was Matt's scheme. There were these CDs with the phone book on them. And Matt's like, I'm going to copy those phone numbers and put them on the internet and sell some ads. But he ran into one major problem. Because when he opened the box, yes, this was the 90s and software still came in boxes, this brand new kind of contract fell out. A shrink wrap contract. It said by purchasing and keeping these CDs, you are agreeing not to copy this software. But this wasn't anything like a typical contract. After all, Matt hadn't signed on any dotted line. So he went ahead with his plan, and his website ended up taking off. That was when the software company fought back. So they sued me for a lot of money, and that was intimidating, and then the deposition was intimidating. And I didn't really have a... My lawyer was my my boss's husband, who'd literally just been admitted to the bar like a week ago. Eventually, Matt's case ended up in federal circuit court. And for the first time ever, the judge ruled these kinds of contracts were valid. What Seidenberg represents is a big break in contract doctrine. Nancy Kim is a contracts professor at Chicago Kent College of Law. And she says the judge's reasoning was that the software industry was brand new and it might struggle to take off without protection. So the judge kind of stretched the definition of what a contract is. It opened the door to the idea that, hey, there are other ways that we can enter into a contract. This case helped introduce a new idea to contract law, that someone can agree to your contract just by making the contract noticeable enough. And this idea soon opened the floodgates to all these new ways of getting customers to accept contracts. You've probably consented to a bunch of these. Sometimes there's a checkbox, other times there's a link to some terms of service tucked away somewhere. Those can be valid contracts. It's this game that companies are playing. Because of course they want to get you through the process as quickly as possible, right? Because it's not a good user experience. It's not supposed to be a good user experience if you're signing a legally binding contract. And so today, contracts are less about reading the fine print and more about being able to find the fine print. Emma Peasley, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR News. Coming up at 825 on WBUR's Morning Edition, it's Friday, and that means StoryCorps. Today, a father and daughter talk about their shared love of folk dancing. It's 749. Here's a look. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The White House says leaders in artificial intelligence are agreeing to manage risks associated with the technology. Health experts worry tornado damage to a Pfizer manufacturing site in North Carolina could worsen hospital supply shortages. Rescue crews in western India are resuming their search for survivors in a landslide that killed at least 16 people. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. Near 80 today under skies that will grow overcast throughout the day. There's a chance of afternoon showers and we may see thunderstorms tonight. It'll dip into the 60s. Then tomorrow, partly sunny and low 80s, mid-80s on Sunday and sunny. It's 73 degrees in Boston. When The Sims came out 23 years ago, it changed gaming because it was for everyone. But now it's one of the many classic video games that's out of print. That's a problem for gamers and researchers. I worry about what the long-term future of video games are going to be if we have to sort of rely entirely on the fan community for this kind of documentation. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Edward Hopper is known for his iconic portraits of urban life, like the 1941 painting Nighthawks featuring a late-night diner. But it took a long time for the now-legendary artist to find his voice. A new exhibition at the Cape Ann Museum takes us back to a pivotal summer a hundred years ago when Hopper met the woman who helped launch his career. WBOR's Andrea Shea has the story. In the early 1900s, curator Elliot Bostwick Davis says New York artists flocked to Cape Ann, hoping to capture its picturesque landscapes, sea-swept structures, and coveted clarity of light. In 1923, when Edward Hopper shows up here in Gloucester at the age of 41, he's only sold one painting over a decade earlier. He knows he's really got to really make or break it. He's been persevering, but he hasn't managed to break through. Another artist was in town with her brushes. For 40-year-old Josephine Nivison had crossed paths with Hopper on other New England painting retreats and studied with the same teacher. But they finally met cute, thanks to her feline friend. Joe Nivison had come with her cat, and her cat, Arthur, escaped onto the back streets of Gloucester. So the story goes that Edward Hopper, whether he captured Arthur, whether he found Arthur, unclear, but in any event, Arthur was returned to a very grateful Joe Nivison. Like Hopper, Nivison was single, but Davis says they made an unlikely pair. He was over 6'4", almost 6'5". She was just a little over 5 feet. She said that tall men excited her, so that was something. She was incredibly gregarious. She, in addition to painting and drawing, she loved to dance. She was an amateur thespian. She was very independent. Nivison would later describe Hopper as being reserved, saying, When you spoke with Edward Hopper, it was like putting a stone down a well but you never heard a drop. When Hopper reunited Nivison with her cat, he also gave her a hand-drawn map of Gloucester. Their courtship sparked with painting excursions around the city. 
he usually used oils. And she said, why don't you try watercolor? It's one of the popular mediums. It was her favorite. Nivison's suggestion was pivotal for Hopper. Now the duo's watercolors are among 66 works in the exhibition Edward Hopper and Cape Ann Illuminating an American Landscape. Museum director Oliver Barker is thrilled to host dozens of loans for this deep dive into Hopper's formation. I think this provides, thanks to Elliot's brilliant scholarship, a new way of looking at Edward Hopper, an artist that we all think we know. A wall map shows spots where Hopper and Nivison painted, so we head out to follow in their footsteps, passing Victorian homes, a staircase, and a church near the museum that caught the artist's eyes. So in 1923, Edward Hopper and Joe Nivison must have come down here to this street corner to paint Our Lady of Good Voyage. He was building up his confidence with watercolor as a medium. She loves the fluidity of it. She definitely has a different kind of artistic practice, which helps him see his way to becoming more of himself. And I think that spontaneity that Joe was after was really helpful to him. Nivison also helped launch Hopper's career. She asked the Brooklyn Museum to include her Bose work in its American watercolor show that fall. Back at the gallery, Barker says Nivison made a sacrifice. Technically, she gave up six of her slots so that six of his pieces should be shown. The Brooklyn Museum ended up buying Hopper's Cape Ann watercolor titled The Mansard Roof. After this big break, Nivison wanted a summer in Provincetown, but Hopper was set on Gloucester. They have a huge argument, and she says, well, I'll go on one condition that we get married today, and it's July 9th, 1924. Nivison became Hopper's model, muse, and producer of his career. Like other 20th century artist wives, Davis says Nivison gave up exhibiting for a time because the art world wasn't as interested in her work. She was certainly pragmatic, and I think she knew that her watercolors sold for much less, even when she was showing them, and if she could could make sure that Edward Hopper was able to continue to paint, he would have a very successful career. While 57 of his works are in this exhibition, the centerpiece gallery belongs to Nivison. This we think of as Joe's space. A few of Nivison's Cape Ann watercolors are here, along with three stunning portraits. Her teacher captured her as a promising 19-year-old art student. Hopper made an oil of his wife painting when she was about 50. We stand back as an assistant curator hangs a self-portrait Nivison executed in her 70s. You're all ready with the level. It's fantastic, right? The idea was to really have her speaking to her earlier selves as she changes. I mean, I also think it's extraordinary. You don't really think of women of this generation painting themselves this way. Wearing a sheer pink negligee, Nivison stares out from the canvas with a confident gaze. Davis says she never stopped painting and had her first full-scale show in New York in 1958. The Cape Ann Museum celebration of Nivison's often overlooked legacy opens tomorrow, which is also Edward Hopper's birthday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea.
Harvard Medical School professor Dr. Lisa Iazzoni is the newest member of the Massachusetts Department of Transportation Board of Directors. She's also the first member of that board from the disability community. She spoke with Carrie Young for our podcast, The Common, about how that role and her research overlap. I last year did a look at worldwide experiences for cancer care for people with disabilities and across the entire globe. Transportation is an issue in people getting access to care. It's as simple as somebody on the ride, not having the ride show up or show up late. For them, when they get to their doctor, their doctor might not be able to see them because they're so late. So something as straightforward as that to simply kind of planning for being able to get to appointments, um, being able to get the screening and preventive services that you need. So transportation is really key to accessing health care. Well, here in Boston, you know, I know you've used the transportation system here in Boston quite a bit, whether it's the MBTA or, or other modes, but knowing what you know about the city, how would you grade Boston in terms of transportation accessibility? Well, you know, this is a very, very, very old system. And so I think that we see that and um, we see the effects of the age. And for me personally, when I need to get to a doctor's appointment, I put a lot of extra time knowing that the bus might be late, knowing that the subway might be late. I get these text alerts from the MBTA all the time warning me about that. So I think that it's just a matter of planning and realizing that it is going to take you extra time. Hear more of that conversation with Dr. Lisa Iazzoni on The Common. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. We'll have temperatures near 80 today and clouds will gather throughout the day, maybe giving way to showers late this afternoon. We may see thunderstorms tonight. It'll be in the 60s. Saturday will be partly sunny in the low 80s, mid 80s on Sunday and sunny. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Federal forecasters are warning that the record-breaking hot weather blanketing many parts of the U.S. will likely continue for the next few months. It's Friday, July 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the White House says leading tech companies have agreed to safeguards on new AI technology. Also this hour, the Pentagon has long denied that civilians were killed in the 2019 attack on the founder of ISIS, but what actually happened is far from clear. These people that we use force on, what is the real evidence that they were in fact combatants, that they weren't civilians that were caught in the wrong place at the wrong time? Plus, the president of Wesleyan University in Connecticut on its decision to end legacy admissions. Is it harder to ask someone for support if you rejected their daughter or granddaughter? You betcha. Near 80 and increasing clouds today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Parts of the Northeast are still recovering from catastrophic flood damage that happened last week. Parts of Vermont have been declared federal disaster areas, but the damage spreads farther than that. 
Connecticut farmer Tony Botticello says the losses to his farm will cost him about half a million dollars, and he cannot recover that this year. The timing couldn't be worse because we just started harvesting, and uh, we can't really go back and replant corn because from the time you plant it until the time you pick it is 90 days, and that would be mid-November when we usually have a frost. Western Kentucky is also recovering from catastrophic flood damage this week. Some parts of the state got the heaviest rain Kentucky has ever seen. Governor Andy Bashir will tour some of the region today. The White House says it is exploring new options to make standoffs over raising the nation's debt ceiling a thing of the past. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the administration says it's launching a working group aimed at exploring all legal and policy options aimed at preventing future stalemates. According to a statement, members of the Biden administration are set to consider actions that Congress can take as well as what the White House is calling constitution-based solutions to avert future standoffs over the debt ceiling. President Biden earlier this year accused House Republicans of reckless hostage-taking over the terms for lifting the nation's borrowing limit. For months, Biden refused to negotiate with House GOP leaders to meet their demands. Just days before the nation was expected to default on its debt, Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy struck a deal to suspend the debt ceiling until after the 2024 election in exchange for cuts in government spending. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. A Texas judge is expected to rule in several weeks on a lawsuit filed by 13 women against the state of Texas and its abortion ban. The women are seeking clarity on the medical exception for pregnancy complications. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin prepared this report. Over two days in an Austin courtroom, four women testified about developing serious pregnancy conditions and how the Texas abortion laws delayed or complicated their care. For the defendants, Texas Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Stone made closing arguments. It's hard not to listen to those stories and heartbreaking stories and not not feel for the the patients in this case. Uh, But at the end of the day, this court has to apply facts to the law. He added that none of the patients have current pregnancy complications, so they're not facing immediate and irreparable harm from the law. Judge Jessica Mangrum presided. As the hearing concluded, she said it would take her several weeks to weigh the arguments and the evidence and make her ruling. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News, Austin, Texas. You're listening to NPR News. The White House says seven big tech companies have voluntarily agreed to work with the administration on ways to develop and manage artificial intelligence. Details are light, but they include having AI systems tested internally and externally before they are released, and developing methods to let users know when content is created by AI. The Senate Judiciary Committee has passed a bill that would require the Supreme Court to write an ethics code for itself. The move comes after reports surfaced about trips taken by justices that were funded by donors. Two movies opening this weekend have Hollywood feeling like the center of the universe for the first time in a while. NPR's Bob Mondello has details. Actors and writers may be on strike, blockbusters falling by the wayside, but changing the conversation are two celebrated directors, Christopher Nolan and Greta Gerwig, and their dueling biopics, Oppenheimer, about the father of the atom bomb and Barbie about the doll. Hi, Barbie! Hi, Ken! 
As a short, light comedy, Gerwig's Barbie will easily win the box office race. Nolan's epic Oppenheimer has already won with critics. And audiences have a nickname for the double feature many are planning to make of them, Barbenheimer. Though for folks going nuclear first and shocking pink second, maybe that should be Oppen Barbie. Bob Mandela, NPR News. The United States opens its bid to win its third consecutive Women's World Cup today. Its first opponent is Vietnam. The two teams will play in Auckland, New Zealand, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern Time tonight. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healey says Massachusetts farmers affected by last week's devastating floods may not be eligible for federal disaster aid. She says that's why the state is partnering with the United Way to raise money for those affected. We've got at least 75 farms who, you know, have incurred at least $15, $20 million worth of damage. And it's appropriate for people across Massachusetts to step up and find ways to support the people who feed our families. Healy adds that private donations can get to those who need help faster. She says $100,000 has already been raised. Several members of the state's congressional delegation are asking the Biden administration to approve a disaster declaration that would allow people affected by the floods to get federal help. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu wants to fight urban heat by cooling the surfaces of roofs and pavement in low-income neighborhoods. Wu joined leaders from other cities around the country in Washington, D.C. this week as part of the Smart Surfaces Coalition. The group plans to launch projects in their cities that are meant to mitigate the effects of climate change. They include painting roofs and pavement lighter colors so they absorb less heat. The Registry of Motor Vehicles says it's been dealing with an influx of people applying for a driver's license. That's because on July 1st, a new law went into effect, allowing people to apply for a license regardless of their immigration status. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports the registry has set up a call center that can answer questions in 250 different languages. Registrar Colleen Ogilvie told the Massachusetts Department of Transportation's board the center has received about 20,000 calls so far. Ogilvie shared the top languages spoken by consumers inquiring about the law. English, Spanish, and Portuguese, which is really in alignment with what we're seeing for demand of non-English services regarding materials and then also interpreters for road tests. The RMV interpreted driver's manuals and other road test materials into 15 languages to prepare for the implementation of the law. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. The Red Sox open a five-game homestand tonight as they host the New York Mets. Increasing clouds throughout the day today. There's a chance for showers this afternoon. It'll be near 80. Cloudy with showers and storms likely overnight. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Tomorrow, morning showers, then cloudy in the 80s. Sunny and in the 80s on Sunday. Right now, it's 74 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBWAR. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July, and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at wbur.org slash beachbooks.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. Wesleyan University has responded to the Supreme Court's decision to strike down race-conscious admissions by ending its legacy admissions. We speak with the university's president in just a few minutes. But first, the White House has been saying for months that it wants to manage both the risks and rewards of artificial intelligence. Now major tech companies working with the White House have made voluntary commitments on how they will develop, test, and share AI systems. The president and company leaders will be speaking about what they've agreed to this afternoon. NPR's Deepa Shivaram covers the White House and joins us now. Hi, Deepa. Hey, good morning. Good morning. So which tech companies are involved here and what's in these agreements? Yeah, there are seven tech companies that have agreed to these commitments, and those include Amazon, Anthropic, Google, Inflection, Microsoft, Meta, and OpenAI, which is the parent company of ChatGPT. The leaders of these seven companies will be at the White House today to talk about these agreements, which are essentially parameters for how they'll develop AI technology and roll it out for public use. So, for example, the companies committed to making sure users know when content is AI generated through something like a watermark. They also say they'll make a point to avoid bias in their technology and protect privacy. But overall, there aren't a lot of details in what the White House has released today. So at this point, it's hard to say how effective these commitments will be or if more companies will choose to join in on these agreements. Well, speaking about effectiveness, I mean, these commitments are voluntary, right? So how will the companies be held accountable? Yeah, that's definitely a concern for a lot of people. There are a number of polls that show public trust in big tech companies to do the right thing is pretty low. I asked Jeff Zients, the White House chief of staff, about this, and he says the federal government will do whatever they can to hold these companies to their commitments, but it's just a first step. Commitments the companies are making are a good start, but it's just a start. And the key here is implementation and execution in order for these companies to perform and earn the public's trust. And he pointed specifically to one of the commitments, which is to have external checks on emerging AI technology from independent third parties. For example, some of the companies will have their AI systems tested at a hacking conference next month at the encouragement of the White House. But beyond that, we don't really have much detail on who serves as these third party checks on the technology and how those people are selected. And there really is so much concern about how this technology is going to be regulated because it could have so much impact on how people work, what's true, what's not true. So we're waiting on details on these commitments. But what other actions are we anticipating coming from the White House in the meantime? Right. In the next few weeks, the White House is planning to release executive actions on AI. The Office of Management and Budget will also be releasing guidance to federal agencies on how they can and cannot use AI in government work. And the White House says they're also closely working with Congress as they develop legislation on regulating AI. And on top of what's happening in the U.S., there's also a lot of global conversations happening, too. The White House says they've consulted on the agreements they announced today with dozens of other countries. And Biden continues to speak about AI with foreign leaders. He mentioned AI at the Nordic Leaders Summit last week in Helsinki. And he and U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak have been talking about AI with each other consistently. It's a lot of talk. So what concrete actions the White House takes next on the international front will also be something to watch. That's NPR's Deepa Shivaram. Thanks so much, Deepa. Thank you. 
Wesleyan, a private and selective liberal arts university in Connecticut, announced this week that it will end its practice of legacy admissions. In other words, it will stop giving admission preference to the children of its alumni. Wesleyan's move follows the Supreme Court's June decision to strike down race-conscious college admissions. For more, we're joined now by Michael Roth, Wesleyan's president. Good morning. Thanks for being on the program. Good morning. Good to be with you. So legacy admission is seen as something that benefits wealthy white students. Was your decision a direct response to the Supreme Court's decision to end affirmative action? Well, legacy admissions has been only a small part of our program for several years. And although I thought we should do away with this some time ago, I didn't. It was a popular program among some alumni. And uh, I didn't see the urgency of doing away with a program that only affected very few students a year. But in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision, it became clear to me that any advantage you give to incumbents, to people who already have advantages, uh, is a glaring uh, sign of unfairness. And we want to recruit a very diverse uh, student body. And I want to send a signal to everybody that Wesleyan is committed to doing that. And that means not advantaging people who already have advantages. But how do you do that in a situation where the cost of that education is so high? Tuition at your university is nearly $70,000 a year, and that doesn't even include housing. Of course, that's not unique to your school. Are you looking at bringing down costs as the biggest barrier to diversifying your admissions beyond the most wealthy, the most privileged? No, because if you get into Wesleyan and they're attending Wesleyan, we meet your full financial need. So if you have no economic resources, it's free to come to the school. And that's one of the things we're trying to get across to people in Title I high schools, people who don't have economic resources, who see the sticker price and say, gosh, I can't go to a school like that. But in fact, our financial aid program, which is funded mostly through generous donations, our financial aid program makes it possible for anybody who is accepted to attend. Right, but they have to go through the process to qualify for these scholarships, creating barriers that they wouldn't have otherwise. And that there's a huge margin between black communities, white communities, because of the history of this country. I mean, how do you diversify the class um, beyond legacy admissions? We have to be very aggressive in recruiting students from places that haven't typically uh, looked at schools like Wesleyan. I think mm. you're right. The history of this country leads some communities to think those places are not for me. And we have to spend a lot more time uh, in Title I high schools, in parts of the country that, where there's a concentration of people with modest economic means uh, to recruit folks who would benefit from a Wesleyan education and in turn would uh, help teach other people about the, uh, the lives they're about to embark upon after graduation. I think that call for diversity is much harder because of the Supreme Court's decision to not allow us to take race into effect. But there are many other ways in which we can uh, diversify the class, and we're, we're committed to doing that. And legacy admissions, again, it affects so few people. What's really important is that we spread educational opportunity around this country, that we improve the K-12 system, that we adequately fund not just private schools, but public universities and community colleges. Legacy admissions is attractive to talk about, but the real issues are elsewhere. So what ways, you said there are other ways to improve diversity, what ways are there and what are you going to do? So in our case, uh, we've been working with the National Educational Equity Foundation to bring high quality online and hybrid courses into high poverty areas of the country and uh, high poverty high schools. Uh, we've been actively recruiting veterans 
who for whom a liberal arts education may seem, oh gosh, that's not for me. And when upon reflection and given the right kind of information and when they are aware of financial aid, they realize it can be for them. We've started a recruiting program internationally in Africa, bringing groups of African students every year to the United States and with full scholarships at Wesleyan. And so there are a number of programs that were initiated to let people know that coming to a place like Wesleyan is exactly for them and that this country should be open for educational opportunity for everyone. That's Michael Roth, president of Wesleyan University. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. We've been talking a lot about heat this week. Well, more hot weather is on the way. On top of all the record-breaking heat we've already seen this summer, NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports that climate change and El Nino are to blame. El Nino is the natural climate pattern that drives up global temperatures. It officially started in June. Now, federal forecasters say they expect it to persist into 2024. Matthew Rosencrantz is a meteorologist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We do expect the El Nino to continue through at least the northern hemisphere winter. And there's a 90 percent chance or greater of that happening. So El Nino will stick around through next March. El Nino tends to mean hotter weather in the western part of the U.S. We're already seeing that. In Phoenix, temperatures are lingering above 110 degrees, and nearly 400 daily maximum temperature records fell in the southern U.S. in June and the first half of July, most of them in Texas. John Nielsen-Gammon directs NOAA's regional office for the south. El Paso is now at 34 consecutive days over 100 degrees and counting. And the heat isn't going to let up. Forecasters announced that they expect above-average temperatures for the southern and western U.S. in the coming months. Here's the thing. The heat waves that already happened this summer actually make that future hot weather more likely because the heat transforms the land itself. Here's how. Imagine sunlight hitting the land. If that land is moist, like wet soil, the energy from the sun causes that moisture to evaporate. But if there's not a lot of moisture, most of the energy will be absorbed by the land and make the land hotter. Think of the difference between the sun hitting a moist, grassy area versus a dry road. The road will get much hotter. The grassy area will stay cooler, but eventually it will dry out too and get hotter. So as things dry out, as you run out of water to evaporate, all of the energy is able to go into heating the ground, which then heats up the air above the ground. Hot land radiates that heat into the air like a hot blacktop. On top of that, once the moisture has dried up, there's less water available to make clouds, which would then fall as rain. So the dry soil stays dry. That's called a feedback loop. Hot, dry weather causes more hot, dry weather. That feedback's been triggered by the heat wave we had in June, and so now that things are dry, uh, they're more likely to stay dry and hot. Such feedback loops are a hallmark of human-caused climate change because the whole planet is heating up. There's a way out, though. If humans stop emitting greenhouse gases, temperatures will stop rising. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition. An NPR investigation reveals holes in U.S. claims that no civilians were killed in a 2019 raid on the founder of ISIS. It's 820. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. What happens in the brain when you pray? When they have that sense of oneness, that sense of connectedness, we see decreases of activity in the parietal lobe, which is helping us to create our spatial representation of ourselves. Spiritual experiences vary by faith, culture, and the individual. But is neuroscience showing us that they're more similar than we think? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It'll grow increasingly overcast today and we'll have a high near 80. There's a chance of showers beginning in the late afternoon and we may see thunderstorms overnight. It'll fall to around 68. Tomorrow, partly sunny and a high near 82. Sunday, sunny with a high near 85. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Fadden. And I'm Martinez. California Democratic Congressman Robert Garcia is a comic book nerd. You'd have to be if, as he did, you got sworn into office holding a rare Superman comic book that he borrowed from the Library of Congress. So yeah, he's hardcore. And this weekend at San Diego Comic-Con, Garcia is launching what he calls a bipartisan congressional popular arts caucus. Congressman, so why does Congress need this new caucus? Hey, thank you. Well, I mean, look, I think first the, the popular arts are an enormous part of uh, the national economy. When you think about what the top movies are, whether it's these big Marvel or DC blockbusters, Star Wars, what are the big shows, shows like Game of Thrones, the popular arts drive uh, our culture, they drive the box office, they drive streaming. And so it's a great way to support the economy, support workers. It's a bipartisan caucus, and we already have about 30 members signed up. What type of policy work do you want this caucus to focus on? Well, I mean, th- there's a lot. I mean, look, there's 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 areas where there's a lot of bipartisan support also. For example, issues around piracy are, are really, really important. We want to make sure that we're protecting uh, the rights of creators. Obviously, issues around just making sure that people know that uh, the U.S. is a great place to do business, that we're exporting um, our products across the world. Issues around censorship. Um, abroad are, are really critical for us. And of course, just making sure that we have a prepared workforce. We, we know that there are labor shortages. Obviously, there's labor strife right now at this moment. Uh, but we want to make sure there's a well-trained workforce for all the jobs in the, in the popular arts. So you mentioned the labor uh, issues that are going on in Hollywood right now. Artificial intelligence in creative rights is one of the one of the reasons why two Hollywood unions are on strike. Will this be an issue that you're going to be discussing at the caucus? 
I mean, absolutely. I mean, if, obviously we're just launching the caucus this weekend, but um, AI especially, there's a lot of bipartisan interest in this. Uh, it, it is gonna be incredibly, not just to the popular arts, but in so many industries, be so disruptive. I mean, there's also obviously some opportunity, but to, to creative, creative people, um, to this industry, there's a lot of dangers. The good thing is that I'd like, I'd like to think that I've assembled like the biggest group of nerds in Congress. So this is like a <laughs> caucus of like nerds and geeks. And I actually think that we kind of get it like more than most folks. And, um, you know, I think, uh, when nerds get together, I think we can do We can do a lot of good things. So who are the Republican nerds then? So we, we've got a good group of Republicans that are joining. Um, uh, Jay Obernotti uh, is, is, is part of our caucus. Actually, he has a, a long history in, in the gaming space, which a lot of people uh, uh, don't know. And so uh, we've got folks like Maxwell Frost on the Democratic side, you know, new member, freshman member of Congress like me, uh, who also loves gaming, loves actual, a lot of the popular arts. And so we've got a good mix of people that are gonna bring um, different perspectives. And what is it about comics uh, for you that makes this such, such an important part of who you are and your identity? You know, I, I'm an immigrant, and I, I grew up as a young kid when I moved to the U.S. as, as you know as a as a young boy, and I, I started reading comics, and that's how I learned English. I you know English was not my first language, and reading comics got me, uh, you know, really got acclimated me to this country, to the language, and just as a young kid, I looked up to these kind of heroes that you read read about in the comics. And for me, it was Superman and also an immigrant, also from a strange place, um, also, you know, had a secret identity. And, and I think that, you know, you relate to these things and a lot of people don't realize that these stories, you know, when you think about American fiction and, and, and what we export to the rest of the world, I mean, comics and, and the stories of, of these American heroes is a huge part of kind of global culture and, and what we export as Americans. That's California Representative Robert Garcia, who's launching at San Diego Comic-Con his bipartisan Congressional Popular Arts Caucus. Congressman, thanks. Thanks so much. And now it's time for StoryCorps. Today, a family that shares a love of dance. Carl Levine and his daughter Chloe are both contra dancers. It's a folk dance that's similar to square dancing. At StoryCorps, Carl told Chloe that the family's tradition of contra dancing goes back more than 40 years, when Carl was at a low point in his life. After my first wife left me, I was alone and miserable and looking for some place to go. I felt shy and socially awkward, but... Once I went to a contra dance, I was actually dancing six nights a week. There's probably nowhere where I'm less shy than at a dance. And I met your mom through the dance world. I remember, Chloe, when you were two years old and you, <laughs> you, lined, you lined up your stuffed animals so they'd be ready to dance. Is that true? At home. I okay. remember this distinctly. And I remember you're going to your first ball when you were eight or nine there is a picture of us and you and mom are like posing so beautifully in your finery and I would not stop moving. You did half the dance and then went to sleep on a blanket in the back of the room. You know, when I was in school, I didn't go to dances. But this fall, I had just graduated college. I'd just gotten out of a pretty serious relationship. I did not have a job. But this dance that happens twice a month, I was like, you know what? This is a thing that I can put on my calendar. It felt like that was the important first step in being able to figure everything else out. I'm most concerned that you be happy and fulfilled, but I'm also happy that I was able to give you something that helped do those things. I love dancing with you, Chloe. 
maybe especially because you're my daughter, but also because you're such a marvelous and beautiful dancer. I have such a sense memory of what dancing with you is. It feels like if I were to ask you, what are your memories of drinking a morning coffee? It's just like a thing that you do so many times, it just sort of is. You're one of my favorite partners. You are also one of my favorite partners. That was Carl and Chloe Levine. Chloe now lives in Boston while her parents still live in New York City, but they still make time to dance together. This conversation is archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later. Because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. We hear about the prospects in this FIFA Women's World Cup for the world's greatest women's soccer player, Brazilian superstar Marta. It's 830. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Russia is carrying out live fire drills in the Black Sea. As NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, the exercises come just days after Russia warned that any ships traveling to Ukrainian ports through the region could be regarded as legitimate military targets. In a statement, Russia's defense ministry said naval vessels fired cruise missiles and successfully destroyed a target ship as part of the combat training. In a separate exercise, Russian naval warships and aviation practiced isolating and detaining vessels, attempting to access areas of the Black Sea, Moscow says, are now closed to navigation. The maneuvers were the latest sign Russia intends to enforce a blockade on Ukrainian grain exports after exiting a United Nations broker deal that had guaranteed safe trade through the Black Sea region for much of the past year. The drills also come as Russian airstrikes targeted grain facilities in the Ukrainian port city of Odessa for the fourth straight day. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Military officials in Taiwan say China flew 25 drones, helicopters and planes towards the island this morning with 19 entering airspace monitored by Taiwan. Taiwan mobilized its own aircraft in response. Taiwan is preparing for annual military exercises next week, which officials say will be larger than usual because of threats from China. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. $350 million in federal funding to build new bridges over the Cape Cod Canal is moving forward. A Senate committee yesterday approved the item as part of a larger budget proposal from the White House. More than $2 billion is needed to replace the Sagamore and Bourne bridges over the next decade. Earlier attempts to get federal funding failed. 
The amount of coronavirus found in the Boston area's wastewater has tripled in the last three weeks. Data from the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority show the amount of COVID in the wastewater is at levels not seen since March and April, but those levels are still far below where they were the same time last year. LaSalle University in Newton is laying off staff and cutting some of its academic programs. The school says low enrollment and financial issues are behind the cuts. The changes will eliminate majors, including global studies, sociology, and English. The Boston Globe reports students in those programs will be able to finish their degrees before the programs are fully eliminated. Edward Hopper is best known for his paintings about urban life, but some of the most formative time he had as an artist happened in Gloucester. WBUR's Andrea Shea has more on a new exhibit opening tomorrow at the Cape Ann Museum. The new show Edward Hopper and Cape Ann shines a spotlight on a pivotal summer 100 years ago. In 1923, Hopper met another New York artist named Josephine Nivison. Curator Elliot Bostwick Davis says Joe Nivison helped catalyze Hopper's career by introducing him to watercolor painting. She went on to play a major role as his manager, muse, model, and wife. I hope visitors can go on the journey with Edward Hopper and really explore his trajectory as an artist and also think about, well, what is Joe's impact? The exhibition is on display through October 16th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at vrtx.com. The Red Sox and New York Mets play tonight at Fenway. Boston is eight and a half games behind first place Baltimore in the AL East, and the Sox are three games out of a wild card spot. Clouds move in throughout the day today and we'll have highs near 80. There's a chance of afternoon showers and tonight we may see thunderstorms. Overnight it dips into the 60s. Tomorrow partly sunny and highs in the low 80s. Then sunny on Sunday with temperatures rising to the mid 80s. Right now it's 75 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness. Amelia Fox returns to solve murders in this forensic crime drama where every dead body tells a story. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. For years, the Pentagon has denied that U.S. troops harmed civilians in the 2019 raid on ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. As a reminder, in that raid, Baghdadi blew himself up as special operations forces attacked his house in Syria. But NPR reported back then that a Syrian man was badly wounded and his two friends were killed when U.S. aircraft struck the van that they were in. The Pentagon has said that they were combatants, but NPR has now analyzed internal documents and found flaws in how the U.S. came to that conclusion. NPR's Daniel Estrin has been working on this for years and joins us now. Hi, Daniel. Good morning. Good morning. So let's start with that Syrian survivor of the airstrikes and what he's told you about what happened to him. 
His name is Barakat Ahmad Barakat. He says he was at work with two friends at an olive oil press, and his friends were giving him a ride back home. And he says they had no idea that further down the road, U.S. forces were raiding the hideout of the founder of ISIS. There was nothing suspicious at all. We kept moving normally. There was nothing ahead of us on the road. Suddenly, I felt something hit us. They were hit with U.S. airstrikes. His two friends were killed. His right hand was blown off. His left hand can barely function. He says today he cannot work. He struggles to feed his five young children. He wants compensation from the U.S. And what's the Pentagon's account, and how did you investigate it? When we first brought this account to the Pentagon, it was a few weeks after the raid, and the Pentagon says it was the first that they had heard of those claims, but it did a review of what happened, and they got back to us and said that the men were enemy combatants. They had demonstrated hostile intent, they ignored U.S. warning shots, and kept driving in the direction of the raid. But the Pentagon did not give us many other details. This was a confidential report that they had prepared. So we sued the Pentagon hmm. to get access to that report under the Freedom of Information Act, and we got it, and we discovered flaws in the Pentagon's story. <sighs> the main thing that we found was around the central claim that the Pentagon put forward. The Pentagon said that the van ignored warning shots, but we concluded that those warning shots provided hardly any warning at all. We estimate about two or three seconds um, if you look at the Pentagon's own account wow. and compare it to the aerial images from the operation. And remember, Leila, this was at night, so this would have been a total blur to a driver. And also in the Pentagon report, there was a recommendation to prepare a top-secret document addressing the Pentagon's conclusion that these men were combatants and not civilians. But the Pentagon told NPR they have no record that that document was ever produced. So what you're describing, I mean, two or three seconds to react, not very long. The Pentagon, though, still concludes these men were combatants. What can we conclude about what happened that night based on what you saw and what you're seeing? Well, former advisors to the Pentagon tell me that, you know, you can understand that a U.S. pilot may have made a decision to strike in the heat of the moment, in the fog of war. But all these years later, the Pentagon still has not produced any evidence to back up their claim that these men were enemy belligerents. And these experts say, you know, it looks like a case of mistaken identity. Now, a New York-based advocacy group, the Zomia Center, has requested that the Defense Department reopen this case. The Defense Department has said it is looking into that request. So this may not be case closed. And Piers Daniel Estrin, thank you for this reporting, Daniel. You're welcome. Daniel's story aired yesterday on All Things Considered, and you can see some of the Pentagon documents, photos of the survivor, and more on the story in English and Arabic at NPR.org. The expansion of telehealth has meant patients can more easily reach their doctors, including over email or text. That's helped many patients, but doctors say it has overwhelmed their inboxes. In response, some health systems started charging patients who get clinical advice over messages. But NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports finding the right balance is tricky. Reaching a doctor before the pandemic generally meant calling to schedule an in-person appointment. Then telehealth made it easier to contact doctors directly. A.J. Holmgren is a healthcare information technology professor at the University of California, San Francisco. When telehealth exploded, when you wanted to get a Zoom visit or an audio visit, you needed to sign up for the patient portal. And I think a lot of people just sort of became aware that they could message for the first time. This was hugely convenient for patients, but it imposed sudden new burdens on doctors. Holmgren tracked how doctors spent more time during the pandemic managing electronic health records. Even after lockdowns ended, 
he found doctors were fielding over 50% more patient messages than before. Many doctors responded after hours, essentially working for free. Physicians who receive a ton of portal messages tend to report being more burnt out, tend to report being more cynical about their job, tend to report that they are thinking about leaving clinical practice. Many hospitals and health systems, from Johns Hopkins to Houston Methodist and Cleveland Clinic to Veterans Affairs, have told patients they will be charged for clinical emails or texts with doctors. Such charges are generally covered by Medicare and Medicaid, as well as most private insurance, though patients may bear co-pays. Holmgren says the goal of charging for these messages was both to reimburse doctors and discourage patients from excessive emailing. In actuality, however, he says the new charges have not solved either of those problems. His research shows doctors only bill for a tiny fraction of messages, about 3%. Nor do the fees help manage email volume. The fees led to slight declines of about 2%. Uptake has not been super high amongst our clinician workforce. He says that's because billing for messages itself is complex and time-consuming. Plus, doctors don't want to alienate patients by charging them for emails. In short, there's still no business model to support the realities of how patients and providers now talk to each other. Caitlin Donovan says... Finding one is essential. She's senior director of the nonprofit National Patient Advocate Foundation, which represents patients who are chronically ill or live in rural areas. Over the last few years, we've realized that telecommunications is a health issue. The ability to email doctors, Donovan says, was transformative for many patients. Phone calls come with wait times. Sometimes patients don't have the energy to make that phone call, let alone come into the office. There are people who live hours away from their providers. Donovan hopes email access can remain without adding costs to patients. We're balancing both this need to rapidly expand access and to really entice providers to make it part of their practice with trying to make sure that it is accessible and affordable for patients. Eve Rittenberg agrees. She's a primary care doctor and assistant professor at Harvard. She says she values the ability to talk to patients. For me, it's an incredible privilege that my patients share their fears and their worries and their questions with me, and I can talk with them directly. But it also has to be sustainable. Rittenberg argues what's needed are systems to sift through the constant influx of messages that filter out administrative tasks so she can focus on clinical matters. And she also wants to see payment systems that compensate doctors for providing overall care, regardless whether that's in an office or over email. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, as tech leaders announce new voluntary safeguards on AI at the White House today, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at how the evolution of AI is already having an impact on the job market. Increasingly cloudy today with temperatures near 80, there's a chance of afternoon showers, upper 60s tonight, and we may see thunderstorms. Saturday, partly sunny and low 80s, clear skies on Sunday and in the mid-80s. Right now it's 75 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Marlboro-based Boston Scientific is shutting down its manufacturing site in the San Francisco Bay Area. The move means 52 people will lose their jobs. The medical device maker says it plans to move the work it was doing out west back to Massachusetts.
Burlington-based Carrig Dr. Pepper is acquiring a 33% stake in La Colombe Coffee Roasters. The $300 million agreement aims to expand the premium coffee maker's reach in the U.S. and Canada. Federal regulators still need to approve the deal. A popular New York dumpling chain is now open in Boston's Chinatown. Nanxiong Express is a fast, casual version of a Michelin restaurant in Queens. It offers a variety of dumplings and mostly caters to takeout and delivery customers. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Landmarks Orchestra with a free concert, including performances from Terry Lynn Carrington and Louise Toppin, Wednesday, July 26th at 7 at DCR Hat Shell. And Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. The Women's World Cup is underway in Australia and New Zealand. Brazil's superstar forward Marta is making her sixth World Cup appearance. And though she's won many championship trophies in the sport, she has yet to win the World Cup, which is considered soccer's biggest prize. NPR's Kari Khan reports. You don't have to tell Orlando Pride fans how great Marta is. They've treasured her since the NWSL franchise signed her six years ago. Brazilian expats like Bruna Palma were out in full force at a recent home game. It's really fantastic. She came from Brazil. It's really hard to get here. We're very proud of her, so that's why we cheer for her. Yeah, they cheered. Especially when she effortlessly tapped the penalty kicked over the head of the goalie to tie the game. Pride went on to lose 2-1, but fan Kate Neal says signing Marta was epic. She brought something we weren't expecting, and besides experience, is also Marta. She's brilliant. Marta Vieira da Silva has been named FIFA's World Player of the Year six times. She has two Olympic medals, and she holds the record for most World Cup goals, man or woman. Now 37, she says this will be her last World Cup the only major prize not on her list. Sexta Copa do Mundo. O que significa isso para você? Ah, muita coisa, né? Um trabalho de uma vida inteira. Asked recently by Brazil's Sport TV what a sixth World Cup means, Marta says it's the pinnacle of a lifetime's work achieved with great teammates, love and affection. Torna isso muito mais fácil, né? Born just years after Brazil lifted its ban against women playing soccer, Marta grew up playing with boys. She was bullied by many, but outplayed most. At 14, she boarded a bus out of her dusty, impoverished town in Brazil's northeast for a chance to join an all-female team. Within a few years, she was playing in Europe and at 17, scored in her first World Cup. Julia Belis Trinidadji is a sports journalist and studies women's soccer. She's not only talented, brilliant player, the best we've ever had, but... Also, she has been such an important voice in the women's game. On and off the field, Marta defies typecasts. In this ad, she's plugging Avon Cosmetics. A gente 
Wearing its bright red lipstick, she also sports during matches. Women's football is here to stay, so play it like a woman, she hypes. She caused a stir wearing the Avon product during the last World Cup with talk of violating FIFA's ambush marketing rules. Undeterred, she's most outspoken about Brazil's poor investment for younger generations, a big reason the national women's team long relied on older players. After the team's disappointing loss to host France last World Cup, her impassioned plea to Brazil's girls went viral. Women's football depends on you to survive. Value it, she raged. Fast forward to this year's World Cup, and progress can be seen in Brazil. The national team is younger, and many play abroad. They also have a female world-class coach, Pia Sundhaga, who led the U.S. to two Olympic gold medal wins. The team had a triumphant send-off, trouncing Chile in a friendly before departing for Australia. Marta, Marta, she's the queen of football, the crowd sang. 13-year-old Victoria Marinho came with two classmates, both boys. Like Marta, 20 years ago, she plays on the boys' team. Her school doesn't have one for girls. Is that really hard? Yes, it's so different play with boys and play with girls, so... She stops mid-sentence as Brazil scores again. <laughs> then picks up in Portuguese. She says it's not fair that women's sports still doesn't get the support like the men. The stadium was less than a quarter full. After the game, as Marta was boarding the team bus, I finally get a chance at a quick question. How are you feeling going into your sixth World Cup? Feliz, happy, she beams. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Brasilia. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on the brutal attack on two women in India, plus new research into the habits of mother orcas. It's 8:50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College. Flexible, rigorous, relevant. Help manage data and insights to shape industry. bc.edu slash analytics. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The White House says it's reached an agreement with Amazon, Google, and other tech giants on how they test and deploy artificial intelligence. Members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation are asking for a federal disaster declaration from last week's flooding. And singer Tony Bennett has died. He won 20 Grammys over his long career. He was 96 years old. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. On last week's Wait, Wait, Emmy Blotnick revealed herself to be a genius of marketing. I've always said that should be the slogan for cottage cheese. Yes. It looks expired when it isn't. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagel. The slogan for our show is it looks like NPR, but it isn't. See what we mean when you join us for this week's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
Near 80 today under skies that'll grow increasingly overcast throughout the day. There's a chance of afternoon showers and we may see thunderstorms tonight. It'll dip into the 60s. Then tomorrow, partly sunny and low 80s, mid 80s on Sunday and sunny. It's 75 degrees in Boston. Congress is trying to figure out how to improve air travel. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Indeed, a hiring solution that helps businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash hire. And by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com slash business. From Marketplace, I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer in for David Brancaccio. Airlines say shortages of pilots and air traffic controllers have contributed to flight delays and cancellations. The House yesterday took a crack at dealing with these issues with a bill that passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. House bill, which funds the Federal Aviation Administration, would raise the mandatory retirement age for commercial pilots from 65 to 67. For regional carriers, that means more experienced pilots who can train newcomers. The bill also provides more money to hire air traffic controllers. The Transportation Department wants to add 1,800 next year. The Senate is considering a similar bill, but is not as far along. One holdup has been on the question of whether to ease pilot training requirements. The House bill rejected that idea. Washington has until October 1st to reauthorize funding for the FAA. I'm Novosafo for Marketplace. Turkey's central bank has been an outlier when it comes to fighting inflation. It did not raise interest rates like almost everywhere else. Now with a new finance minister and central bank governor, things are changing. Victoria Craig reports from Ankara. Rates are rising in a country led by a president famous for his objection to using them to fight inflation. But the pace is not as fast as perhaps some would like. The country's benchmark interest rate this week rose to 17.5% from 15%. That was a much smaller rise than both economists and local businesses predicted. And it's led some to question how far the president will allow the central bank to go in its fight against inflation. In the past, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has called in interest rates, the mother and father of all evil. The central bank's gradual move higher comes as the finance ministry rolls out its own policies aimed at cooling consumer demand. Taxes on a range of goods have risen in recent weeks. In the long run, that could work toward the common goal of bringing prices down. In the short run, though, it makes goods more expensive for households already finding it difficult to afford basic necessities. In Ankara, Turkey, I'm Victoria Craig for Marketplace. Let's do the numbers. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up by around a half percent or less, with the Dow future up about 60 points. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. Learn more at c3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. And by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. Learn more at schwab.com slash why Schwab. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. 
This week, our sibling program, Marketplace Tech, has been reporting on artificial intelligence in the workplace. Goldman Sachs released a report earlier this year. It predicted AI advances could expose about 300 million jobs worldwide to automation. Will this be a net positive or negative for the workforce? Megan McCarty-Carino is the host of Marketplace Tech. She spoke with David Barncaccio. Look, economists are debating this. Maybe in the long run, there'll be net many more better jobs because of this technology, or maybe not. But no one says it's not going to be disruptive. How worried should workers be? For some context, this Goldman Sachs report that, you know, says hundreds of millions of jobs will be exposed to automation in the near future doesn't mean all those jobs are going to be lost. There will be some shuffling. There will be new jobs. We really wanted to ground our reporting this week in how people are using these tools in their work right now. What can that tell us about, you know, the potential for new jobs, kind of the, the limits of this tech and how we might realistically see this play out in the near term? All right. So not start date 21.53.7, <laughs> but, you know, now 2023. 20, right. I mean, what kinds of workers are feeling the effects of this AI technology already? Well, one industry that's getting a lot of attention is customer service. Researchers at Stanford and MIT studied, you know, the rollout of a chat bot that's already happened uh, to sort of assist human agents in answering common customer questions. Lindsay Raymond is one of the co-authors, and she said, this is sort of a case of AI augmenting work, not automating it. When you think about history of technology, which technologies have been super impactful. A lot of those are augmentation technologies where like you have a tractor and what a tractor does is you have a human sit on top of it and it makes you far more powerful than you would be alone. And Raymond says on average, this approach increased the number of cases resolved each hour by about 14 percent. Yeah, and I saw that study. It was fascinating in the sense that the people with the least training benefited the right. most. So. You think it sort about of brings that. people up to a certain level. All right. Now, you know, businesses are saying it's going to help people with better tools, be more productive. But if with a new tool, one person can do the job of five people, then maybe four could right. lose. You know, these things take time to sort of percolate through the system. We spoke to a longtime copywriter and consultant, Carrie Harrison, who said, you know, she's already seen some businesses using chat GPT to fully generate their promotional materials, maybe businesses that wouldn't have been able to afford an experienced copywriter like her or are OK with kind of average, very predictable text, which is, you know, by design, what these chatbots generate. Harrison said that her business hasn't been affected and that, you know, she's been using these tools. They've actually made her a better writer. I just don't think there's any room now for mediocre, lazy copywriting. We have to be able to distinguish ourselves from ChatGPT. Still, you know, Harrison, she's been in the business for, for 20 years. And when she thinks about younger workers just trying to break in, she acknowledges, you know, things could look very different. Marketplace tech host Megan McCarty-Carino, thank you very much. Thanks, David. And this special series from Marketplace Tech AI on the Job is now available at Marketplace.org or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM. 
American Public Media. Near 80 today and it'll grow cloudy, maybe giving way to showers late this afternoon and thunderstorms tonight. Overnight, it'll be in the 60s, partly sunny on Saturday in the low 80s, mid 80s on Sunday and sunny. 75 degrees in Boston, BBC is next. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.